Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll hear from local business owners and their decisions to reopen or not. It was really one of the hardest days I've had to face. We're small. We're like a family. Uh, Lots of our employees have been here since the day we opened or shortly thereafter. People have to think about their families. I got to think about the other barbers in the shop. You know, they have families. They have people that's depending on them. I have people that's depending on me. So it was a tough decision. Those conversations in just a moment here on Closer Look. But first, the latest information as relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of noontime today, there are 24,551 confirmed cases. The number of deaths statewide has surpassed 1,000. It's now 1,020. Again, the number of deaths statewide is 1,020. And also, 4,478 are hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of noontime today. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is defending his decision to reopen some businesses. During a press briefing on Monday, Governor Kemp pushed back on critics who questioned the decision. Kemp also took aim at news coverage. And I just want to tell you, I appreciate what the president's doing. You know, he he said it best, best today. The media wants to continue to divide us during this period. But let me assure you, there will be no dividing. We're going to continue to work with the administration and the president and the vice president and the task force. Governor Kemp avoided addressing President Trump's comments from last week, disagreeing with the reopening of Georgia businesses. Trump said he was not happy about Kemp's decision. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. To open or not to reopen, that's the question for many independent restaurant owners and chains. We know Waffle House is reopening, but it won't be the same dine-in experience. Also, headquartered right here in the Atlanta area, Chick-fil-A is not opening up for dine-in services. We're checking in with some independent restaurant owners, and so now we turn to Jamie and Aaron Russell, the owners of Poor Hendrix, located in the East Lake neighborhood. Jamie and Aaron, welcome to Closer Look. Good afternoon. Hi, Rose. Thank Thanks you for so much us. for having us. All right. Um, Jamie, I'll start with you on this question. How long have you all been in business? Uh, about three and a half years. We opened at the end of 2016. And Aaron, I understand you are the man in charge of the food. For our listeners not familiar with the menu, you are a chef. What are you all serving over there? Uh, it's quite an eclectic mix, I would say. Um, a lot of small plates and tapas, and uh, normally uh, a bistro-type menu as well. Of course, all that's kind of gone out the window mm-hmm. recently. What's uh, pretty popular over there? Um, believe it or not, we've kind of gained some notoriety early on for our grilled cheese sandwich, and uh, that fame doesn't seem to have abated during the quarantine. So wait a minute. Y'all have a wonderful menu with different tapas, and everyone loves a grilled cheese sandwich. It's one of our biggest sellers and always has been. What's fancy about this cheese, or is the bread, or is the combination? Uh, absolutely nothing is fancy about it. We do make the bread <laughs> uh, here at the restaurant, but um, to be honest with you, it's, it's pretty basic. A few types of cheese, and every single one gets hand-griddled in a cast-iron pan, I guess, but uh, it's nothing that you know you probably wouldn't do at home or learn from your parents. I have a feeling your grilled cheese sandwich probably tastes a whole lot better than mine, Aaron. Um, well, there's a lot of love in it, but that's the only <laughs> only thing that's special, I suppose. 
let me ask you all this. Um, when was the decision made? Uh, when did y'all close poor Kendrick to dine-in service? Uh, we had our last service um, for dine-in on March 9th, I believe. Yeah. And then we closed on the 10th and 11th and reopened on the 12th as takeout only. How many employees do y'all have? Uh, we employ about 25 people. And you've had to reduce the staff since you closed your dine-in service, I take it? Yes. We only have been able to keep on five people plus Aaron and myself. Uh, although we did recently, it's just this week, we were able to bring in one of our prep um, cooks for some part-time work. Take us back to when y'all had to tell your employees about the layoffs and that conversation. What was it like? It was really one of the hardest days I've had to face. Um, we're small. We're like a family. Uh, lots of our employees have been here since the day we opened or shortly thereafter. Uh, so we called everyone in for a meeting and let them know that they were going to be furloughed. Um, and I wanted to go ahead and make that move so we could start getting them unemployment benefits as quickly as we could. That was my next question. You all did file unemployment benefit claims on behalf of your employees? Yes. Uh, we are filing partial claims weekly for all of the laid off staff. Did you promise them that once this was through, obviously, whenever that time is, that you would make sure you could bring them back in? Or, or what did you tell them? We really just explained that we were going to do everything we could to keep our heads above water and keep the business afloat so that when this was all over and we were able to reopen, they would have a restaurant home to come back to. And Erin, did you all apply for any of the small business funding or grants that are out there? Uh, yes, uh, Jamie did most of the legwork on that, um, but uh, we did apply uh, in particular for the PPP, um, but the funding had already dried up by the time our application was approved, uh, although we hear recently that more funding's in the way for that program. And you all are going to reapply, or does your application still hold? Because now you've been, you've been approved, so do you have to go through the process again? Do you know? We received an email um asking for a few more documents. Our application was basically ready to submit when the funding dried up. Uh, so now I think there are a few more hoops to jump through uh, before they can submit our application for the new funding. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, as you all know, is allowing restaurants to reopen uh, as long as they follow some particular guidelines. Are you all going to reopen for dine-in service? Uh, we don't plan to reopen uh, right away. That is uh, today, I believe, that it's at least permissible, uh, you know, within those guidelines. Um, a lot of those guidelines are uh, a little impractical for a restaurant of our size. We're very small. Mm -hmm. uh, maintaining social distance at a bar is a difficult thing. And also there's still some concerns from, you know, our local uh, public health officials that, uh you know, have given us some pause when it comes to reopening quite this early in the middle of the, what we still think may be the middle of the crisis. Have you had your regular customers, you all are in the East Lake neighborhood, have you had people asking, hey, when are you all going to reopen? Uh, our neighborhood has been so supportive through all of this. Um, our regulars still come here and get takeout once twice sometimes more than that a week they have been amazing supporting our staff fund people have asked but honestly everyone does not want us to reopen yet uh, as soon as the announcement was made i was contacted by a couple of regulars saying please don't reopen you know we'll do whatever we can to help you stay afloat but we just don't think it's safe uh, and we agree with that i just don't think that uh, it is safe, you know, listening to the CDC and other public health experts. Um, the most important thing to us is keeping our staff safe and keeping the community as safe as we possibly can. And I am not comfortable, you know, putting anyone at risk unnecessarily. 
that was my next question. How will you all decide when it's time to reopen? So it sounds like you're going to wait. You, you're going to follow, as everyone's been saying, follow the science. That's our plan, um, trying to just follow CDC guidelines and uh, listen to the health experts about when it would be safe to begin a slow, you know, gradual reopening. Jamie and Erin, how long can poor Hendricks provide takeout service before? I imagine you are feeling the crunch, obviously, but how much longer can you even sustain doing this with your regular expenses that you all have? Well, we feel very lucky that at this point we are covering our bills with the money that we are bringing in. Um, It's twice as much work for half the money uh, because obviously doing takeout only, you're missing all those dine-in customers. And we uh, have a very hop and bar usually and a lot of alcohol sales. Um, But we are, thanks to our amazing amazing regulars and customers they are keeping us afloat so we can go on as long as we have to obviously that's you know we want to get back to normal when we can but we want to do it in a safe way to keep our staff and community healthy do you all own the building the space the location where you are are you renting we're renters and our landlords by the way have been uh terrific you know they they offered us and, and our our fellow um restaurateurs um, next door to us, uh, some opportunities to save money during this time. They've been really generous. That was my next question. What does that mean to you to have your landlords be so cooperative and willing to work with you all and understand your plight? Yeah, it, it, uh, it means a lot, you know, to feel like you're um, not in it alone and when it's difficult to get loans and some of the other programs out there to, uh, you know, have these people who um, themselves have a lot of expenses. Uh, obviously, these big buildings cost a lot, and uh, to have them work with us is uh, yeah, really touching. Well, we know and have spoken to some of our fellow friends and other restaurant owners in the industry who haven't been so fortunate, so mm-hmm. we're very grateful to them. Yeah, we've had those conversations here on the program about that. Jamie and Aaron, are you able to take any lessons from this and prepare if this happens again? Are you able to take anything from this time and try to prepare? For sure. Uh, as much as I hope that we can go back to business as usual one day and that we won't be faced with this kind of uh, situation again, we know that that's probably unlikely. So we've learned a lot about how to transition into a takeout business when necessary. We've learned a lot about putting extra precautions in place to keep our staff safe. We've learned how to run an even leaner ship than we used to mm-hmm. um, and really make the most of our products in-house. Aaron, you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's she kind of hit the nail on the head. I think in a lot of ways we had to create a whole new business model on the fly. She mentioned that we, we closed for two days and – basically had to start from scratch as a whole new business uh, almost overnight. And, you know, should we unfortunately have to go through that again, at least that particular transition will be a little bit smoother just from all the knowledge that we've gained. And, um, and we can kind of know what to expect a little bit, but there are some things that will never be any easier. There, there will be, you know, of course the required furloughs again for our, our friends um, who work here and, that will just remain a terrible experience. Uh, and I don't think there's any way to, to ease that uh, for us or for them, for that matter. Um, but yeah, hopefully us and um, everyone else has kind of learned a lot of lessons about uh, staying lean and, you know, saving for the, uh, the unforeseeable, well, at least what used to be an unforeseeable thing for most of us. What would be an idea timeline for you all to reopen a month June, July, August? I'm not sure there's any way to really know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to follow the data and listen to the experts and the scientists and um, do what they think is best and the timeline that they give us. Yeah, a lot of them want to see, you know, uh, declining new cases um, for a solid 14 days. 
some of them want to see longer. Um, yeah, we're going to stick with the expert opinions on this one. And uh, every state's different. Some of the states are already experiencing that, which is terrific for them. And some states are still climbing. So we'll just stay ready and stay nimble and be prepared. And to your knowledge, all of your employees, to your knowledge, um, they have not tested positive for the virus, to your knowledge? Yeah, that's correct. We stay in contact um, with those that we had to furlough uh, pretty frequently. And, of course, we see our, our little quarantine family, the five or the seven of us, including Jamie, daily. And we all hold each other pretty strictly accountable for staying in quarantine when we're not at work, and which is, you know, very little. But... Uh, yeah, everyone's staying healthy and happy so far. We're very fortunate. And you, how have you all been able to, or it sounds like you all have been able to even maintain, or are you able to maintain even some social distancing with the few of you that are, are still working at Port Hendricks? We've kind of uh, agreed early on that we were going to be our own little quarantine family. Um, it's a small building and not a lot of space to stay away from each other while working. Mm -hmm. So most of us live with only one other person. Um, and we just kind of have made this our little seven person poor Hendrix quarantine bubble, if you will. Jamie and Aaron Russell, the owners of poor Hendrix, apparently the best place to get a grilled cheese sandwich in the Atlanta area. You know, I get in trouble for that, uh, Aaron. Located in the East. I think so. <laughs> That's very generous. Located in the East Lake neighborhood and their decision not to reopen. Jamie and Aaron, best of luck to you and the entire staff. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you Thank so much, you so much for having us, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Just a moment ago, we spoke with the owners of an East Lake neighborhood restaurant, Port Hendricks. Jamie and Aaron Russell have decided not to reopen for the time being. However, Morris Smith has reopened his Grant Park barbershop, Sideline Cuts. I caught up with Morris last night after the barbershop had closed for the day. How long have you been there? I've been in Grant Park uh, about four, going on five years. My brother used to say that being a barber, being able to do that, it takes an innate skill. You can't teach it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be born with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely believe that. I definitely believe it. Tell me about your, your customers and your clientele. and uh, It's like family, right? Yeah, most definitely it is. Um, I, have a good, I have a good clientele base. Uh, I've been knowing them for years. A lot of them been coming to me for a while. So ever since I've been cutting in the metro area. So, yeah, so definitely like family. At what point did you think, you know what, I'm going to have to close down too? It was before the, the governor's uh, executive order. The mayor uh, had issued a, uh, you know, a notice about closing down. But, you know, I was hearing about the pandemic and I was hearing about the coronavirus. But, you know, of course, a lot of us, you know how we hear stuff, but we don't take it serious. It was one of those type of things. That's when I, you know, realized that okay, this thing is serious, and we gotta, we gotta go ahead and shut it down. How long did you think it would potentially last? I thought that it would probably be about two to three weeks max. I I didn't expect it to last, you know, long as it did. As we went past two or three weeks, what'd you think? Yeah, it, it started to uh, settle in. It started to settle in. And, but I would always tell, you know, my guys in the shop, you know, I always save up for a rainy day, you know, um, because, you know, in our business, we make cash every day and we working every day mm -hmm. and we consistently making money. And, you know, that, con that, you know, was brought to a halt completely. How many other barbers in your shop, Morris? I have uh, six other barbers in my shop. When you had to, when that decision was coming that the shop was going to shut down, did y'all have conversations? What, what did you talk to them about? Yeah, we did. We we were all talking about it, but we, we like I said before, we just, we wasn't sure about it, but it was one of those things where we, you know, we just had to, we had no choice. 
And in a situation like at a barbershop, they're almost kind of like contractors in a sense, right? What yeah. they make is what they do on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And some of those guys, you know, in the shop, you know, some of those guys make in a weapon three to, you know, three to five hundred dollars a day. And that income is just, you know, com you know, completely just stopped. And then they have to pay you booth rent in a sense, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, booth rent. Mm -hmm. So Morris, when sideline was closed, you couldn't collect booth rent because they weren't there. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I, uh, I, you know, that's part of being a business owner. You know, that's part of being a business owner. You, you know, you take the, you know, you take the big hits as as a business owner. Morris, did you do any uh, cuts while the shop was closed? Did you? No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do any cutting. I I just, uh, you know, I followed the orders and I went inside and I just quarantined. When you heard that the governor was going to lift the restrictions on hair salons and, and barber shops and that nature, you immediately made the decision? Yeah, I, I pondered for a little bit, but, you know, these are hard decisions to make. People have to think about their families. I got to think about the other barbers in the shop. You know, they have families. They have people that's depending on them. I have people that's depending on me. So it's a, it was a tough decision. But you made a decision to open up. Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. You have six other barbers, right? And then there's you, right? And then there's right. folks that are obviously waiting for their cuts. Right. How are y'all practicing the social distancing? What are y'all doing? Well, I had a meeting. I had a meeting with my guys before we opened back up. And of course, I had to put some procedures in, in place for all the barbers and, and procedures in place for the clients that are entering the shop. And what we did was, you know, I made sure that, you know, all of our guys, we took a, an exam, which was a barbicide certification. Mm -hmm. And I made sure that all my guys have the barbicide certification. You know, this way they know about germs, disinfecting, things of that nature. Are they wearing masks? Yes, they are. Mm -hmm. You you wearing a mask too? Yes, most definitely. And protective gloves, if possible. Yes, if not if not gloves, uh, just making sure you wash your hands after each cut. Also, uh, we have uh, Clorox disinfectant wipes. Uh, we're wiping the chairs down, you know, after each cut as well. Um, no one is allowed in the waiting area. And if they arrive early for their appointment, they must sit outside in the car. And the restroom is closed. And we still continue to take walk-ins, but they must remain outside until a barber can serve service them. So you're taking appointments and there are some walk-ins, but technically they can't walk in. They're kind of standing outside to walk. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We'll, we'll just let them know that, you know, we have a notice on the door. We have the same notice on the door as well. and the people know what's going on. So, you know, they're cooperating. Did you have any concerns from customers that some call and say, look, I just want to check and make sure that I come up there to get my fade, I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We did have some 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 calls and, you know, concerns and things of that nature. But yeah, so far we've been, we, we've been able to work it out. But the, the thing is, is, you know, just not, not, going back and not getting comfortable with it. I think we all have to continue to practice, you know, social distancing, continue to practice, you know, washing our chairs down and cleaning up. So this is like a new norm and it's a new habit. And this is something that, you know, we should, you know, be doing in the barbershop anyway. Mm -hmm. What was that first day like? I'm not going to ask you how much y'all brought in, but what was that first day like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was good. It was it was a good day. It was busy. It was different because you know it was one of those things where you know how you're used to the barbershop being crowded. It wasn't it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. It was you know more mellow, in and out type thing. When you told your your fellow barbers that you were going to open back up, what was their reaction? Yeah, everybody. Everybody was on board. Everybody was on board. Like I said, a lot of these guys, you know, they, this is how they feed their families. And a lot of guys, you know, a lot of people didn't receive any type of funding, any type of unemployment. Morris, did you apply for anything for the small business funding, grants or loan or anything like that? Yeah, I, I applied for the grant for the small business. 
Did you get anything? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Morris, what's what's your response to someone that says, you know, look, I understand about your barbers and you, and you, this is how you make your living. Um, but at the same time, when Georgia hasn't reached its peak in terms of this coronavirus, um, what do you say to someone who might question your decision to open up? I mean, you know, it, like I said before, it's a it's a tough decision. It's a tough decision. I mean, do you uh, sleep outside or do you go to work? Yeah. You know, and make the money to sleep inside and to feed your family. Uh, do you remain homeless? I mean, do you uh, you know be homeless or do you go to work and make money and stay inside your home? Mm-hmm. Morris Smith, owner of Sideline Cuts in Grant Park. Morris, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and your barbers. Stay safe. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. And as mentioned just moments ago, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's plan is to allow specific businesses to reopen. That includes barbershops, hair salons, your favorite gym, bowling alleys, and tattoo parlors, movie theaters, dining service at restaurants. Well, what does all this mean for the future of the U.S. and, more importantly, I guess for us, Georgia's local economy? Well, joining me now from the comfy confines of his own dwelling to discuss this is Tom Smith, an associate finance professor at Emory's Guazetta Business School. Professor Smith, as always, thanks for taking the time. A little bit different for us right now. It is. Usually I'm sitting next to you and I've just given you a big old box of chocolates from Cancun, Mexico or something. So I'm sorry I don't have any chocolates for you today, Rose. Well, let's talk about what folks have been missing because Governor Brian Kemp making the announcement that barbershops, salons, movie theaters, some of these businesses that were once shuttered, they can reopen. What do you make of that? Well, I'm a little bit concerned. I mean, I, I've been talking for a couple of weeks now about the, the catastrophic impact of this, of, of this economic shutdown, and it is catastrophic, and I feel desperately for people who've lost their jobs, who've lost their livelihood. You know, I mean, my wife's business is, um, is in trouble. Lots of my colleagues, friends, MBA students, their businesses are in trouble. So I get it. I mean, I want the economy to open up, but I also want people to be safe. And I want people to continue practicing social distancing because it looks like it's actually working. And that's what I am anticipating is that if we keep being diligent we can actually bend the curve and then you know if we can if we can stifle this thing then we can open up the economy and maybe get back to business as usual or business kind of usual but i'm i'm afraid that if we do it too quickly we could have a resurgence that's that's troubling and professor the president has long been calling for that he wants the the nation to reopen he wants the to kickstart the economy Obviously, when you look at the the very unprecedented uh, unemployment numbers, if you can take off your finance hat and your economist hat for a moment, are we sacrificing the health of the nation in this attempt to reopen the economy, to get the economy kickstarted? No, I mean, that's, I, I appreciate the question. I think it's, it's really nice that people are, are considering these and, and, and trying to consider them outside of politics, which is really, really challenging right now. So uh, trying to keep people healthy by saying all non-essential businesses are closed or most non-essential businesses are closed. I mean, clearly, unemployment is unprecedented. The 23 million people filing new unemployment claims in the last couple weeks. Um, we're going to have this huge hit to GDP, right? So mm-hmm. it's we've never experienced anything like this. Are we sacrificing the economy to save people, 
right? Are, but are we willing to sacrifice people to save the economy? I don't want any of my colleagues to get sick. I don't want any of my neighbors or friends to get sick. I mean, this is, uh, this doesn't know any political aisle, if you will, right? Left, right, red, blue. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, I know people who've gotten sick. I have relatives who are, are struggling with this in New York. It is awful, and it doesn't matter. These are conservative relatives and, and liberal relatives. Like, it's, it's just awful. And, and I don't want to sacrifice anybody that I know or any, any colleagues or friends or neighbors just to get the economy going. But at the same time, it's, I mean, it's really difficult to watch this many people out of work. I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Clearly, everybody's struggling with the same set of problems. You know, I don't, it's almost, I don't even know what to say. It's just so unprecedented. When we talk about those indicators of a, of a strong economy or those indicators that a recession is looming, obviously we look at job loss. Uh, clearly that is an indicator that, of the nation's struggling economy. Right. Yeah, no, it's just very unprecedented. I mean, it's, it, it, to put this in perspective, and I've been talking about this with a number of people, is that, I mean, after Hurricane Katrina, we saw about 70,000 people in New Orleans filed for unemployment claims, between 70 and 75. And the unemployment rate went from about 5% all the way up to about 16%, I mean, literally in a couple of weeks. And so think about, we've had now in, in Louisiana, like 70,000, then 90,000, then another 80,000, then another 90,000 people filing for unemployment claims. I mean, think about Hurricane Katrina hitting your city four weeks in a row, it's just, the number of people who are unemployed is just insane. And it's, it's not going to get better until we have a better understanding uh, with respect to how, the, how we can bend the curve, how we can get the virus under control because the economy runs because you and I and your listeners are going out and buying goods and services that we're visiting local enterprises, spending our money, and that consumption turns into their income, which then turns into their consumption, which turns into somebody else's income. I mean, there's a reason why we talk about the economy as being circular, is that it literally is your consumption becomes my income, my income becomes somebody else's expenditures. And if we can't consume, then we can't make income. It's crazy. You look at a state like New York or your state like Georgia where reopening, look, it's, it's going to have a different outcome than, let's say, if you're reopening in Montana or, or a state that may not have a high number of cases. So is it something as simple as that there are specific regions of the country that you think need to be, quote, reopened or the, whole, the entire nation? Look, New York and California and Texas and, you know, those are some strong economies. Yeah, no, I actually I really like where you're going with this. It's it's really important to understand that. I mean, our, we, it is the United States of America. Right. I mean, and so a lot of business does transact not only from rural to urban areas, but also across urban areas. Right. So, I mean, we're here in Georgia. Delta is one of our, you know, one of our premier employers and premier companies. And people get on Delta flights on Monday morning and fly to New York and then fly back, you know, Thursday evening or Friday morning. And we have a lot of people who do that kind of consulting. They're all over the place. Is it possible you could open up a pocket, let's say North Georgia, Ellijay or Blue Ridge or something like this without having, without, let's say, causing additional virus spread? Maybe, but that's really challenging. I mean, think about like a town like Blue Ridge, which is its purpose is to provide sort of this North Mountains environment from people who are coming from the city. So even mm-hmm. if you say we don't have that many cases in this small little city, well, what if your city is a is a destination for people who are coming from the city? Well, now you've got potential of spread from it, from downtown Atlanta to downtown Blue Ridge because you're inviting that travel. So trying to get the economy going in one town might actually cause an outbreak because you're inviting people who've either been exposed or are asymptomatic carriers into your community. That's that's what I think is the biggest challenge. But 
the attempt to reopen Georgia or the attempt to reopen the nation for business, is that enough right now to even prevent what we know is coming, which is that R word you and I talk about all the time, the recession? Right. No. I mean, recession. We're, we're in the middle of a recession. Well, the recession started three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And mm-hmm. so we're right at the beginning of the recession. But typically, we only find out that we're in a recession after we've been in it for six months or nine months or a year. Now we've been in it for three weeks. I guarantee we're in a recession right now. Even if we were to open up the economy right now, I don't think you can reverse. You're not going to reemploy 23 million people by next Friday. That's impossible. So we're in trouble economically, and reopening the economy isn't going to undo everything that has happened to our economy in the last four weeks. That is an impossibility. What are those indicators that you look to, that folks like you as economists look to, to say when this when these indicators are as strong as they are, then we are coming out of the recession. And also keep in mind too, what about the rest of the world? Because maybe the rest of the world is not open for business. So that's a two-parter for you. No, again, it's, um, so we're gonna see unemployment skyrocket probably to 30%. It could be higher, I, I hope not, but it's a real possibility that we see unemployment at 35%, 40%, right? I mean, it could be that five out of every 10 friends that you have have been furloughed or laid off or fired. That's, I wouldn't be surprising at all. Just looking at Facebook friends, that's what's happening with me. So I would expect that you're, you're gonna have to see the economy open up to see those numbers starting to move in, let's say, a non-negative direction. So if unemployment is going way up, it's only after the economy gets reopened that you would see unemployment start to decrease. But remember, that coming out of the 2008 recession, there was a large share of, of our population that still thought in 2011, in 2012, in 2013, mm-hmm. that our economy was still in an economic recession, even though the recession officially ended in June of 2009. So what an economist decides is the end of a recession isn't going to be the same as what you know, uh, the Joe or Jane on, on Main Street thinks is the end of their recession. So mm-hmm. even if the economy starts moving, but you still have you know, unemployment at 15 or 20 percent, then the recession is still alive for a fair share of people. Uh, this is, I mean, again, something we've never experienced. But you and I always talk about consumer behavior. So what's your projection about consumer behavior after this? Because folks who've experienced Maybe they lost their job, you know, the income, you know, stopped. Maybe now people will be saving more. So consumer behavior will be, you know what, I'm going to put off buying that because if we go through this again, I want to make sure I got some cash stashed. That's a big part of this too. Yeah, no, that's a really smart observation. I think that consumers are going to change. They've already changed the way that they're spending. I mean, people don't have very much to spend on, right? So you can't walk down the street to your local store and go buy, you know, clothes or, you know, maybe you can go buy a new shovel, but I mean, not much more than that. Right. And so I think people are changing the way that they spend. I mean, you mentioned that the governor wants to reopen movie theaters. Well, it could be that in, you know, 12 months, if the rest of the country is opening up movie theaters in 12 months, people say, you know what? I don't really need it. I don't need to sit in a dark room and eat M&Ms that cost me, you know, $18. I think I can <laughs> do this at home, right? Or I was talking about some of these workout places. I mean, uh, strapping yourself up with a, some kind of a heart monitor and having people like, you know, encourage you to hit your 80%, whatever number, that might be really attractive. But I was just talking to a bunch of my undergrads and they all said, geez, I've noticed something. A lot of people are walking around my neighborhood. Like I've never seen so many people out trying to get exercise. I'm like, wow, yeah, and I've noticed the same thing. It could be that when this is all said and done, people are out walking, they don't need to go to the gym, they don't need the gym membership, but that's a change in consumer behavior. As we wrap up, Tom Smith, if this idea, this notion of we're going to open up some once shuttered businesses and it proves to be not such a great idea 
and there are more confirmed cases. Tragically, there might be some more deaths. People aren't going to feel people aren't going to feel inspired to come back out there again until they know for certain. So then you have a, a longer duration of time that businesses are then closed again. And what does that spell in the end? Yeah, that's a that's certainly a, a real possibility is that you open up too early and then you get a spike in cases and then people say, okay, now I'm going to shut her in for three months for sure. And then I'm not going to go back out because my friend, you know, caught this thing when we had this, you know, reopening or what have you, you know, if you're a business owner, I, I mean, clearly we don't want business owners to suffer. They're suffering so much. And we want these business owners to be able to conduct business. I mean, clearly that's what we need as an economy. You know, what if you're a, you run a barbershop and you catch COVID because one of your customers was asymptomatic and, and then you give it to your grandmother or you give it to one of your relatives or something because you thought that you were in the clear. That would be tragic and that would be really unfortunate. I could imagine that that's likely to happen because we've seen these asymptomatic carriers and we've seen people give it to each other when they didn't even realize that they were carrying it. That There's no great solution. I mean, it's, I hope that these business owners are taken care of. I hope that they can open up their businesses. I am really fearful that opening up too early can cause an additional spike in cases. It's, we just do not have enough testing to know how many people are really walking around carrying this thing. I'm giving good vibes and good thoughts to all of our policymakers because this is going to be a very, very difficult time for them as they navigate through this. Tom Smith is an associate finance professor at Emory's Gwazetta Business School. Tom, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Stay safe. Yeah, thank you, Rose. You too. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Our health care workers, from doctors to critical care nurses to support staff, they're all on the front lines of this coronavirus pandemic. You may recall when I spoke with Shane Jackson, he's president of the local health care staffing company, Jackson Healthcare. For those who are really on the front lines of this, and we just get to work with so many of them, I just don't think that we can be grateful enough to them. You know, it's, after 9-11, the country very rightly honored the first responders. I think our medical staff, our, our doctors and our nurses, they're the first responders of this crisis. Being grateful. Well, now there's a new local organization working to help healthcare workers. It's called The Mill Bridge, and the organization was created by a local high school student. Her name is Gray Cohen. Gray, welcome to the program. Of course. Thank you for having me. Now, you are currently a student at? Druid Hills High School. Are you enjoying the virtual learning whole platform, or is it a little getting a little old for you now? It is slower than a normal school day and allows me to, you know, get outside, do some exercise between my work, which I enjoy. How are you doing? How's your family doing in all of this? Yeah, it's fun staying home. Everyone's able to have family dinners, and we have game nights and movie nights as well. Now, let me ask you this. Now, when it comes to movie night, are you all compromising? Because, you know, your parents, they're old, so they may want to watch something <laughs> that you're like, you know, I don't want to watch that. I mean, do you all compromise when it comes to the movie night and picking the movie? Well, movie night is usually my dad's choice because he likes to show us some movie that he watched when he was a kid. So we recently watched Driving Miss Daisy and Shawshank Redemption, which I personally love. Okay, well, tell Dad, let's let's lighten it up a little bit. Those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How about Kung Fu Panda? Something like that. I don't know. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that you all are doing well. Great. Let me ask you this. What led you to start the Mill Bridge organization? It all started a few weeks ago when my uncle asked my mom how he could send a local restaurant meal to the hospital staff where she works at Emory for the workers treating the COVID patients. When she told me about that, I was immediately intrigued. You know, this was a very meaningful um, thing that he wanted to do. And I wanted to know how we could make it bigger and expand it so the whole community could also send meals to hospital workers. So, Gray, let me ask you this. Or have you been able to track how many meals have been ordered 
and how many folks have been served. Do you have those? Do you have that data? Yeah, so we know about 7,000 meals have been served. That's a rough estimate, but what I've been able to come up with, you know, I think it's been about four weeks of the program. So that's a really amazing number to see, and I want to thank everyone in the community who has contributed. Wow. Did you anticipate that it would, because as we say, as we old folks say, like me trying to be hip, this is blown up. Did you expect that? No. You know, the first day we posted it on my mom's Facebook, she's not extremely active, so I was a little scared at first. You know, we had a few family members uh, signing up the first day, but after we got that first interview, you know, it really started to grow and spread across the community. I ended up I think the second day getting an email from someone in North Carolina about it, which really blew me away. Wow. So which hospitals have you partnered with so far? We've partnered with about 15 or 16 hospitals. It's a very long list. I can read it out to you. No, that's okay. Wow. Yeah. So we also have a few um, spots in other cities. We are working in D.C., Seattle, and L.A. as well. Now, how do you all address concerns about safety, sanitation, making sure the meals reach employees in a, in a secure fashion? Yeah, so we have all meals. We make sure that the donors order meals from established restaurants in the community, you know, ones with current health permits and all. And then we ask the restaurants to deliver the food if they would like to use a third party, such as Uber Eats or DoorDash. That's completely fine, but all of these people are trained, and when they deliver it to the hospital, they give a call to the unit, and the unit phone number is provided from the donors who have signed up on sign-up genius. So then when they call the number, the hospital workers will be able to come down and retrieve the food outside of the hospital. So we don't have the delivery people going inside the hospital Mm -hmm. where they might have exposure. And so I imagine... The feedback has been great. Your mom is one of the millions of folks who are working, as we say, on the front lines in all of this. What does this mean to you personally to be able to help not only folks like your mom, but to provide a service throughout the nation now? It's really blown me away, the feedback that we've got from the community. It means so much, especially because my mom does work in healthcare, and we have lots of friends and family in the restaurant field. And being able to serve both of those simultaneously is very um, is very meaningful. And I really love how the community has you know stepped up and helped me with this. Now this is the first time you've run an organization I take it you're only 16. So what has been the chief? what has that been like being the CEO? And I also understand that your sister Sydney is a part of this too and do you get to tell her what to do? Um, I get to guide her you know she that's a good way. I'm glad you put me in my yeah. place. I get to guide her Rose continue. <laughs> She um, rules the social media platform for Mealbridge, so I let her do her thing, and she's, you know, she's really good at it, so I appreciate that. Gray, walk our listeners through this, because perhaps they may want to be a part of this. So they go to the Mealbridge website, and then do what? Yeah, so on the Mealbridge website, we have the, you know, little blurb about us, and then the list of hospitals we're working with. Each hospital has their own page where you can find some instructions and the list of local restaurants around that hospital. Then you can click to this little sign up button. It takes you to the sign up genius link. And there you can find the list of shifts and days and units and um, all the people that you can send food to. Each unit has a specific phone number that we have on the sign up genius. And we ask that our donors take that phone number. And then when they call the local restaurant they want to donate to, they can give the restaurant that phone number and then the restaurant will be able to deliver it to the hospital. We allow our donors to contact any local hospital they want to support. But we have we do have a list of suggested ones just for people who don't know the area as well if they want to, you know, have some suggestions. Now let me ask you this because at some point and we hope we get to some point where you all will be able to go back to school in the fall. Do you want to continue with this organization? Because I believe there could be a need for it still. Yeah, definitely. Any way that we can, you know, turn this organization into something that can benefit people in the future, no matter if it changes form or is still, you know, delivering food to hospital staff, I would really like to be able to service these people because just 
even though the virus may end, that doesn't mean the work they're doing isn't significant anymore. Greg Cohen is a sophomore at Druid Hills High School. You're also on the lacrosse team. Are you still staying in shape? Yeah, you know, I go in the backyard and my sister, you know, will throw the ball with me. But I'm also doing, you know, some workout routines that I can find online and going for runs pretty regularly, which is nice to get outside and be able to do that. All right. Gray is the founder of the Mill Bridge. And again, if folks want to know more about that and how they can participate, the website is? TheMealBridge.com. Gray Cohen, thank you so much for what you're doing for our healthcare workers on the front lines working during this pandemic. Thank you so much and best of luck to you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And throughout continuing coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, you can also listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. Plus, listen whenever you want. Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.